This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. The Philadelphia A's were the first major league baseball team to spring train in Fort Myers beginning in 1925. They played at Terry Park in East Fort Myers when the population of Lee County was about 12 to 14,000 people. It's approaching 800,000 now. The A's played at Terry Park until 1936 and over the decades were followed by teams from Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and Kansas City, which was the last team to play at Terry Park. The Royals ended their time here in 1987. The Minnesota Twins arrived in 1991 and the Boston Red Sox moved their spring training operations here two years later in 1993. Over the decades, many baseball stars and heroes played in Fort Myers, including Babe Ruth, Jackie Robinson, Roberto Clemente, George Brett. The list goes on and on and on and continues to this day. On today's show, we're going to dig into the City of Palms' rich baseball history with two men who just love digging into rich baseball history. They'll be two of the presenters at the upcoming fundraiser for the Southwest Florida Historical Society called What It Was Was Baseball, an evening of Fort Myers history is told through the prism of diamonds, baseball diamonds. It's Monday, February 26th at the Broadway Palm Dinner Theater in Fort Myers. Glenn Miller is a retired sports journalist and now adjunct journalism professor at Florida Gulf Coast University. And Ken Breen is a baseball history buff who's been digging into Fort Myers' rich baseball history since moving here about five years ago. We spoke last week. Let's hear that now. Glenn Miller, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. Mike, it's great to be back here. It's always an honor to be in this room talking to you and with Jared Gonzalez in the next room. The legendary Jared. Yes. And Ken, thank you for coming in to talk about some local baseball history and just welcome to the show. Thanks very much. So, Ken, I'm going to start with you because we've had Glenn on the show before. Tell us a bit about yourself and your background and your interest in baseball and baseball history. Wow. Okay. Um, moved to Fort Myers back in 2019. I've uh, been a lifelong baseball fan. I work in digital publishing by day, and then at night I uh, do a lot of in-depth research into uh, the history of the game. And in the last couple of years, it's been in particular the history of uh, baseball related to Fort Myers, either related to spring trainings or uh, to the Fort Myers Palms, the 1926 minor league team that we had. Where did you come from and what was the baseball presence there? Uh, most of my life was in the Detroit area. So lifelong Tiger fan, and uh, I was involved in uh, some of the focus groups that went into the new Tiger Stadium uh, back in the late 90s, Mm. and uh, played baseball as a kid, played into high school, and uh, did not play my senior year, even though I was offered a spot on the team, and they won the Class A state championship in Michigan, so biggest regret of my life. Why didn't you play? You know what? I was a senior in high school. Yeah, I you was, had uh, other interests that took out, less kind of effort. Done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you moved to Fort Myers, did you have any inkling of its rich baseball history, or did you learn that once you got here? Really kind of learned it uh, from being here. My wife is from uh, Minnesota, and so she volunteered or got a job as an usher at Hammond Stadium. And it was through that that we kind of met a whole bunch of people and started to appreciate the history uh, here and uh, just kind of spiraled from there. My real in-depth research came, uh, I was looking for something and I came across an article that actually Glenn Miller wrote in the news press in 2006 where they had discovered this uh, baseball team from 1926 that was kind of forgotten about. 
And in the article, uh, Glenn teased us with a lot of questions. And I thought, well, I wonder what the answers are. And it's been a two-year deep dive since then that's branched off into other rabbit holes and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, where did you do your research and, you know, like what kind of sources were you able to get a hold of? So I've been uh, using microfilm when needed at the uh, Fort Myers Public Library. I've also interfaced uh, through email with other libraries when needed when, when they have the microfilm there. Uh, newspapers.com is an amazing resource. Been spent some time at the uh, Southwest Florida Historical Society. They have some city directories and other things that were very helpful. And then I've done uh, some firsthand interviews uh, with people. Um, Glenn, has he uncovered anything that you didn't He's already know? He's uncovered a ton of stuff. I assumed you had totally committed to memory every fact about baseball. I can barely remember how Myers. to find my way back to this building. <laughs> no, I have not memorized it. But no, Ken's done prodigious research. And I said before that he should have a PhD or he's earned a PhD at Fort Myers Spring Training Baseball History. The extraordinary amount of um, information he's uncovered about the 1914 colonels and the colonels who came here again and whatever year it was, 1946-47 and the Fort Myers Palms of the 20s. Yeah, it's uh, extraordinary research. Were you at all aware of the Louisville colonels before he I brought it to your attention? I had heard about them, uh, but I totally forgot about them until he mentioned them again and he found out a lot of stuff about why they were brought here, who was behind it, what it was like for them, both iterations of the colonels in the 19-teens and then again in the 1940s. Hmm. Ken, tell us about the Louisville colonels. They came here in 1914. I was reading through some notes that Glenn sent me, and it sounds like back then towns like Fort Myers would try to get teams to come because it would raise their press profile. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. In the first quarter of the 20th century, Baseball teams weren't committed for decades at a time to cities like they are today. And so each year, uh, different cities would try to bid to bring a team to play there. Fort Myers had never had a spring training. Uh, Fort Myers and Lee County were very small population-wise at the time, and they wanted to increase their profile and get some awareness created. So in 1913, uh, a uh, Fort Myers Citrus Grove owner from Louisville named uh, Colonel John Dyler, led a group of Fort Myers boosters to petition the Louisville colonels to train here in 1914. And the colonels came. And that became our first spring training. They played uh, the Philadelphia Athletics juniors, uh, came down from Jacksonville. Uh, the colonels beat them three games. Uh, and then uh, Branch Rickey sent a group of juniors from the St. Louis Browns from St. Petersburg to Fort Myers, and the Colonels and the Browns split their two-game series. But the importance of that series was the Browns were in the care of a veteran shortstop named Bobby Wallace, making Wallace the very first uh, known Baseball Hall of Famer to have played at what we now call Terry Park. Was it called um, Country Club Park before that? Yeah, it was just the Country Club ball field. Yeah. Well, in reading through the notes about the colonels, it was fun to see, like, that one of the things says that the Fort Myers citizens were driving them around, and they're probably like Model Ts practically in 1914, and they they brought down, like, press with them and the whole nine yards. So it must have been a pretty big deal for the, you know, very few people who were in Fort Myers. Oh, it was a huge deal. Uh, they got all kinds of press in the four Louisville daily papers, and then... Uh, a couple of the articles were picked up and reprinted all over the country. 
Um, so Fort Myers got a lot of very, very favorable press that spring. And, uh, yeah, the players stayed in a hotel uh, on First Street. And uh, the ball field, of course, is about two miles down the road. So citizens that had automobiles were recruited to, to drive the players back and forth uh, from their hotel to the, to the ball field each day. In those two miles, I'm trying to imagine what Fort Myers looked like in 1914. That must have been way out in the boonies on the, on the east side of town, really. Yeah, I imagine it was. I believe the most of the road, um, especially in East Fort Myers, was some sort of shell compound. So it was uh, not necessarily smooth and uh, not necessarily, uh, uh, I suppose, if there, was, if there was any rain, I would imagine it would be very slippery. Hmm. Um, the kinds of spring training stories that we kind of grew up hearing about here start mostly with the Philadelphia A's. Is that right, Glenn? Yes. The Philadelphia A's were the first major league team. Okay. That was 1925. And they would go on in the next few years to become one of the great teams in baseball history. They won the American League pennant 29, 30, and 31, won the World Series in 1929, 1930. And each year in the American League, they finished ahead of the New York Yankees when they had Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. Mm. So that's a testament to how great the, those Philadelphia A's were. They had uh, Jimmy Fox, a legendary slugger. Uh, one of the great stories I love about Jimmy Fox is the A's had a Hall of Fame pitcher named Lefty Grove. At the same time, or shortly thereafter, the Yankees had a fine pitcher named Lefty Gomez. So don't confuse Lefty Gomez and Lefty Grove. There'll be a quiz later. <laughs> but Lefty Gomez was a witty, amusing fellow. And uh, uh, Jimmy Fox was a prodigious Herculean slugger. So fast forward 1969, uh, Lefty Gomez is watching the astronauts on the moon with his wife. And he sees an astronaut go over, bend over, pick up a rock, presumably, and Lefty Gomez turns to his wife and says, ah, that's the ball Fox hit off me in 29. <laughs> did Babe Ruth play at Terry Park? Did I pick yes, up on that? Yes, he did. That, that was a bizarre circumstance. It would never happen today. He uh, wasn't even playing for his normal team or something, No, he right? was, came down here and played in an exhibition game. The Yankees lent him, lent him for a day to the Philadelphia A's. Connie Mack, the A's uh, manager, he didn't text. He didn't send an email, 1920-whatever it was. Uh, he sent a note, a letter to Miller Huggins, the manager of the Yankees, asking him if he could borrow Babe Ruth for a day to have him play in a game down here. And Miller Huggins said, yeah, sure. So uh, Babe came down here. I think the attendance at the park was something like 4,000, hmm. which is a staggering number when the population of the county would have been – 15,000 at the time. That'd be like having 300,000 people at a baseball game. Yeah, today. exactly. You need to put in some <laughs> extra bleachers. But uh, Babe disappointed the the assembled multitude. He went 0 for 4, did not hit any home runs, didn't get a base hit. Uh, but he went on back up to St. Pete with the Yankees at spring training and resumed his career after being lent for a day to play the Philadelphia for the Philadelphia A's, as I recall, against a minor league team called the Milwaukee Brewers. This is not the Milwaukee Brewers of today as a major league team. Back then, there was a minor league team called the Milwaukee Brewers. And Thomas Edison, who called Fort Myers home, as many people know, his winter estates were here. He passed away in 1931, so he would have been around these teams. He even brought the A's, too. Glenn was showing me a picture, right? Yeah, there's pictures of uh, Thomas Edison at Terry Park with Connie Mack, and uh, there's several pictures, actually. And he also made an appearance in 1914 at one of the Colonel's workouts, and he brought his 
visiting guest from Detroit named Henry Ford that day. Wow. He watched part of a colonel's workout. And then there's uh, Edison Philadelphia cigar story. You know that story, Mike? Um, I think it was uh, he gave them cigars, but then they weren't smoking them because they were too sentimental value because of Thomas Edison gave them. So he gave them a second cigar. Yeah, they were keeping their (laughs) first cigar souvenirs. They put them in their jacket pockets because there's this world famous inventor uh, gave them a cigar. They'd be able to tell their kids and grandkids about it. And Edison realized, well, wait a minute, we got to have a postprandial smoke. So he gave everybody a second cigar so they could enjoy a smoke after dinner at the, the Edison home. Break down the other teams that played at Terry Park before we had the other stadiums that we know of now. Okay. Cleveland Indians came here in 40 and 41 with Bob Feller, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. No spring training here again until 1955. 1943 to 45, no spring training in Florida because of World War II travel restrictions. The next team we got, 1955, Pittsburgh Pirates. They had a 20-year-old rookie named Roberto Clemente. Obviously go on to be one of the greatest players ever. The Pirates last year here, 68. They moved to Bradenton, where they remain to this day. 1969, an expansion team called the Kansas City Royals replaced the uh, uh, Pirates at Terry Park. And the Royals stayed there through 87. Then no spring training, Lee County, 88, 89, 90. 91, the Twins come to town. Then 93, the Red Sox. And they're both still here. Glenn's command of the information is why I joked it with him before about having not already learned all the stuff you've learned, Ken. Uh, the teams that came, uh, that spring trained here uh, did relatively well or even maybe you might say great, um, which led there to be sort of a, a, a mystique about spring training in Fort Myers. Can you yeah, explain yes. what You're I'm getting refer- at? The mystique is the pixie dust theory. I won't take credit for it. As I recall, it was John Yarborough, who was then the county parks and recs director, who told me about the pixie dust theory many years ago. The, the pixie dust theory holds that, and the, the history backs it up, every team that comes here gets better. When the Philadelphia A's came here in 25, they had, had, I got it in my notes here, the precise year. I don't think they had a winning record since maybe 1914. They had some wretched teams, uh, 1925. They, they did better. By 29, 30, 31, they were a juggernaut. And the Indians came in 40. They hadn't had a winning season in 15 years. Or not a winning season, a, a contending year, maybe 15 years. They won, what it was, 90-some games in 1940. It was the best they'd done in uh, about 50 years because they came here, the theory holds. 55, the Pirates came. Early 50s, they were one of the worst teams in baseball history. The 52 Pirates, I think it was, lost 112 games, which is extraordinary. But they got better and better. Uh, they finished second in 58, 1960. They won the pennant and then upset the Yankees in the World Series with the famous Bill Maserowski, uh walk-off homer. The term walk-off homer was around 1960, but they beat the Yankees in the 60 World Series. Uh, then the Royals came in, and they uh, were expansion team. Expansion teams are usually wretched for years, but the Royals were – Pretty decent for a while. Then they went on to win several division titles in the World Series in 85. Then the Twins came here in 91 from Tinker Field in Orlando. The previous year, they finished last in their division. They came here in 91. Not and they were still playing at Terry Park? No. Who? The Royals? The Twins. The Twins came to the Lee County Sports Complex. Okay, okay. Yeah. The last year, Terry Park was used for big league spring training was 87. So the Twins came here in 91 to the brand new uh, Lee County Sports Complex, coming off a last place finish. They went worst to first, won their division, and then won the World Series in 91. 
So talk about pixie dust power. So <laughs> bam. So they overcame uh, the last place finish. Came here, won the World Series. Finally, the Red Sox came here in 93. They struggled for years because they were dealing with the curse of the Bambino. Do you know about the curse of the Bambino? Uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I've heard of it. All right, so refresh my <laughs> Actually, that was a theory, uh, I think, uh, first uh, offered up by Boston Globe sports columnist Dan Shaughnessy. The theory holds that the Boston Red Sox will be cursed forevermore for selling Babe Ruth to the Yankees in 1919. So the Babe's nickname, one of many, was the Bambito. So in the intervening years from 1918 up until early this century, the Red Sox had some very painful losses in the playoffs and World Series. We don't have time to get into all of them. But finally, in 04. I'm sure there are people listening right now that know exactly that they, they, They're like. scarred for life for, <laughs> from like 1986. They're, they're still carrying scars from, from that. Uh, we won't mention Bill Buckner by name, uh, who was a very fine player. Was He had a bad moment. He had a bad moment. He was a tremendous player. So uh, eventually, the pixie dust overcame. The curse of Bambino and the Red Sox won the World Series in 04, the first World Series triumph in 86 years since Babe Ruth was there with them in 1918. Ken, in doing your research, did you spend any time over at Terry Park? I mean, I know there's not a whole lot of, you know, major league style baseball happening over there, but it's still there and there's still a ballpark. Oh, sure. I've, I've attended different games over at Terry Park. Uh, the Roy Hobbs World Series plays over there in the fall. Uh, I've witnessed some college games off and on. And uh, what uh, happened after the first time I went there was I saw some banners hanging from the grandstand, and uh, it was a list of Hall of Famers who had played at Terry Park. And uh, I wondered if there might be more, and so I did some research on that as well. How many Hall of Famers played at Terry Park? Uh, it's time to rattle off some statistics okay. to keep up with Glenn. <laughs> well, not not everyone in the Hall of Fame was a ball player. There were executives Understood. and yeah, umpires yeah. and so forth. So of the 360-some inductees, uh, I've been able to place 155 at Terry Park. Wow. That's amazing. I live near Terry Park, and I always just kind of chuckle to myself to imagine that that's what used to be enough of a park to bring in a major league baseball team to spring train because now obviously that's changed right glenn oh yeah a stat talk about stats i always go back to when the county slash city got the pirates here in 1955 spent eighty thousand dollars to upgrade build new grandstand for the pirates at terry park uh 2012 JetBlue Park open. Uh, so I recall the price tag, and that was $80 million. So we went from 80000 to $80 million. But you look at what you get. You, you couldn't lure a team now with what you offered in the 50s. You need more seats. You need more practice fields all in the same location. You need video rooms, suites for the rich people to sit in, uh, weight rooms. They didn't have weight rooms back in the day. So, yeah, uh, more uh, batting cages, more of everything. Hmm. Um, we, yeah, we have about five or so minutes left, but I want to highlight the name because this is what was a new name to me, Babe Didrickson? Didrickson. Didrickson. Tell us who she is and how she connects okay. to Terry Babe Park. Babe Didrickson was an extraordinary athlete. She was uh, – named the, the greatest female athlete in the first half of the 20th century. She was a phenomenally gifted all-around. No matter the sport, she was great. She, in the 1932 Olympics in uh, L.A., she won the javelin and I think it was the 80-meter hurdles. Uh, or maybe she got a silver medal in one of them. But no matter the event and track, she was great. One year at the National Track and Field Meet for women, 
she went up against teams. She won the team competition by herself. Uh, she was great in basketball, but she also played baseball. She played in a – Ken knows, might know even more about the particulars on this, but she pitched in a spring training game at Terry Park for the Philadelphia A's in 1934 against the Brooklyn Dodgers. She pitched one inning, and uh, a couple people got on base, maybe a walk and hit, then induced a triple play. So she left the ballpark, the ball game with a perfect ERA. But as part of a series of exhibitions around the state where she played other cities that year, in baseball games. Oh, I've got to mention golf. If you mention Babe Dieter. She founded the LPGA. She's one of the founders of the LPGA. That's what really caught my eye. Yeah, you're, Mike's I'm uh, like, oh, she's done this and this and this. Yeah, so oh, not only she was she great in track and field, play major league baseball. She won, what was it? She 17, won 17 tournaments 17 in a row? 17 consecutive tournaments. Yeah, she was a phenomenal golfer. She would beat almost every man in the country, except maybe some of the top touring pros. She was a phenomenal golfer, phenomenal track and field, uh, baseball, basketball, room dancing, whatever it was. Took any physicality, she was astounding. Hmm. I told you this a couple weeks ago, but I have to real quick tell you, I came from Kansas City to Fort Myers, and so it was a real treat for me to be able to go to the spring training games. And uh, in probably 86, I don't think it was the World Series year, I went down there and I got to meet Steve Balboni. That's my one, like, brush with fame at Terry Park (laughs) as like a, I don't know, like a 12-year-old. I remember seeing, I saw Steve Balboni play for Eckerd College up in St. Pete. And, of course, being an astute judge of baseball town, I remember telling somebody, you know, I don't, he was a big power hitter in college. Eh, he'll never make the big leagues. Shows what I know. He had mm-hmm. a fine big league career for a number of years. Okay, I'm going to challenge you each to come up with your best baseball player nickname because I picked one from that list that you had in there. I want to see if okay. either of you picked I'll the same as me. with Whammy Douglas. Whammy Douglas. Okay. Ken? Baby Doll Jacobson. I, I went with Nick Tomato Face Cullop. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there a guy named Sitzman on that list too? No, it's a great list. Uh, uh, Simi Sisti, uh, Choo Choo Coleman, uh, Pinky Hargrave, Purple Marbury, Boom Boom Beck, Bobo Newsom, Boom Fowler. I'd go on and on. Uh, use up all types. I'll stop right there. Well, it's just interesting to be able to highlight this. You guys are going to be uh, highlighting this at the uh, the dinner, right? Yes, the Cracker Give Dinner. Give us the basics on that. Yeah, the Cracker Dinner is coming up February 26th at the Broadway Palm Dinner Theater. It's an annual event, a fundraiser for the Southwest Florida Historical Society. Tickets are available through... Uh, Broadway Palm Dinner Theater. Uh, again, it's a fundraiser for the Southwest Florida Historical Society. Uh, we're a nonprofit. We need these funds to keep uh, the doors open. Um, I just want to highlight the fact that I've got some props in the studio. Okay. Glenn brought in. Tell us about the bat before we go. I got an autographed Stan Musial bat. Uh, the backstory on that. I'm, I'm holding a, Glenn's glove. Oh, that's hostage. Uh, so as a little kid up in St. Pete, I got his autograph when I had been 11. So many years ago when I was writing sports for the news press, Stan Musial was in town for a youth baseball tournament. And uh, I went out to interview him at the Sinesta Sanibel. He was in a big conference room with a couple of other people. He had stacks of these programs he was signing for the kids. And I told him, hey, just chatting. I said, I got your autograph when I was about 11. So he offered to sign one of the programs for me. I said, no, we're not allowed to accept gifts. We have very strict ethics policy, not allowed to accept any gifts. So he asked me again and again, and a couple of people said, it would be okay. I said, no, we can't accept anything. So anyhow, I go home, write the story in the paper the next day. About a week later, I get a package in the office, tall cylindrical box, 
I had no idea. We're opening up autograph back from Stan Musial. He said, thanks for the great article. And he signed it, Stan Musial, HOF 69. HOF stands for Hall of Fame, 69 years inducted. And the editor said I could keep the bat because it wasn't like from a county commissioner or city councilman who would be trying to influence me and write something in the future. Did you ever write any further stories about Stan Musial? No, I just wrote that <laughs> that one uh, based on the interview I had with him. But he was a prince of a guy, widely uh, considered as fine a person as he was a ball player. Ken, does, does your historical deep diving continue? Uh, a little bit. Uh, I want to get the uh, book about the 1926 Fort Myers Palms published, working on a final couple of permissions right now for that. And then uh, my next goal is to uh, put together something called The Miracle, and that's to write the story of the first half of our current minor league franchise that began over in Miami. So I want to do the Miami years first and then eventually follow it on with the, uh, the Fort Myers years. Cool. Well, that is all the time we have. I want to thank my guests, Glenn Miller and Ken Breen, are both baseball aficionados, to say the least. Seam heads, as Glenn would say, who will be presenters along with Ted Fitzgeorge at the Southwest Florida Historical Society's upcoming annual Cracker Dinner. They'll be talking about the deep and rich baseball history here in Fort Myers. Glenn and Ken, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. You can find links to information about the upcoming Cracker Dinner fundraiser on our website, wgcu.org gcl. There you can also find a link to the episode of this show that we did back in 2021 about Roberto Clemente's time in Fort Myers and the challenges he faced here on his way to becoming the player known as the Great One. If you missed any of the show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly, our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Bianca Massoni. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. Because the old team just isn't playing And the new team hardly tries and the sky has got so cloudy when it used to be so clear and the summer went so quickly this year Yes, there used to be a ballpark right here.